What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Nikhil Basu Trivedi is a venture capitalist who has spent the last decade investing in various successful startups, including Canva, Imperfect Foods, Color, and Class Dojo. In this conversation, we discuss democratizing access as a business model, the consumerization of healthcare, consumer subscriptions, and decreasing the division between consumers and enterprises, and also Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nikhil, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. BlockFi is building financial products for crypto investors. You can use one of their three products today. You can buy and sell crypto on their crypto exchange. You can deposit crypto and take out a U.S. dollar loan against your crypto collateral. Or you can earn up to 8.6% APY in an interest-bearing account. I'm an investor, I sit on the board, and I'm a happy user. I think you'll really like all of the financial products that BlockFi has been building for crypto investors, especially that high interest bearing account. 8.6% APY is unheard of in the traditional world. So go check them out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. I think you'll really like it. Next up is Choice. Choice is a self-directed IRA product that I'm really excited about. If you're listening to this, you're likely part of the 7.1 million Bitcoin owners who have retirement accounts with dollars in them, but not Bitcoin. I was in that situation too. Now you can actually buy real Bitcoin in your retirement account. I'm talking about owning your private keys and using tax advantage dollars to do it too. It's an absolute game changer. So go get a choice account. There are self-directed IRA product that allows you to buy Bitcoin, hold your private keys, and use tax advantage dollars to do it all. So head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Most of you probably haven't checked your retirement account in a while, but if you have a 60-40 global portfolio with a zero interest rate environment, it might not be doing so hot. So go check it out and consider putting Bitcoin in that retirement account with a choice account. Retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 85,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Nikhil. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Nikhil here. I'm super excited about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks uh, so much for having me, man. Absolutely. Let's just jump right into your background. Um, I think that you've got kind of a really interesting story. Kind of help us understand uh, where you grew up, what you did, uh, school, and then before you became a a venture capitalist. For sure. So I grew up in England. My parents immigrated there from India. And so I was born in the UK, uh, lived there until I was 13 before we moved to the Bay Area. Uh, and so I went from Reading in England to uh, the heart of Silicon Valley, and that totally changed my life. You know, I got to learn about entrepreneurship and uh, everything happening here in technology when I was in high school. Uh, and that led me to start working on startup ideas basically from day one in college. 
so uh, went went to Princeton, you know, revived the entrepreneurship club on campus there, uh, worked on a number of different startup ideas. One of them actually turned into a real company called Artsy, which is a marketplace for original art today. And then the light bulb went off for me that at some point I'd love to be on the other side of the table uh, to try investing. Uh, I had the chance to start out as an intern at Insight Venture Partners in New York, joined there full time, and then just kept going. And uh, and you know ended up joining Shasta Ventures back in 2012. Spent almost eight years there, and so I've spent um, basically the whole last decade investing. Yeah. What what was the desire to uh, invest, even if you had already started a couple of companies? I think um, you know the 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 chance to meet with some of the most talented people every day uh, was the thing that, you know, entrepreneurs was the thing that got me most excited to, to try my hand at investing. I just felt like, wow, you know, that chance to spot the next Google, the next Tesla, the next, um, you know, huge company and uh, get a front row seat to, uh, to being part of that journey as an investor was the, the sort of spark that attracted me the most. And frankly, it's still the thing that I get most excited about every day. I just love getting to spend time with entrepreneurs. And I think it's very hard if you don't love that to you know love venture capital investing because there's a lot of great ways to make money um, and frankly, easier ways to make money than, than early stage investing. But the chance to meet with these incredibly talented people, to see them in, in the nascent stages of building their company and, and then to get the chance to be a part of a few of their journeys as an investor is just an amazing privilege. Absolutely. And you recently talked a lot about kind of this idea of a solo capitalist. Um, it's interesting because you came from more of a traditional venture uh, investing um, kind of structure and organization. Uh, what was the fascination or, or kind of the impetus for uh, being intrigued by the solo, solo capitalist uh, kind of structure? Yeah. So back in um, March, I knew that I was going to end up leaving Shasta later this year. And, and so I started to write and um, I wrote up like a seven page memo about the current status of the venture capital industry and where I thought it was going to go. And it was really for myself to think through where do I want to play in this ecosystem moving forward. And one of the sections of that piece was uh, about the rise of solo capitalists. And I, I sort of tried to define those people very specifically, which are folks who are raising funds that are greater than $50 million. They have the ability to lead uh, rounds that are 5 million and above, and they're playing at a higher level with higher dollars than the super angel investors of a decade ago. Um, And there's a bunch of these folks who have cropped up and are competing on leading seed rounds, leading series A rounds, maybe even leading series B and C rounds against traditional firms. And so I started writing about them for myself and started talking to a number of other people in the ecosystem about them earlier this year. And then that's what led me to finally publish this piece in July, where I think I was the first one to use this term solo capitalist and, and, and define it. Um, and, uh, and again, it was it was a selfish motivation for me to figure out where do I want to play in this ecosystem, but to also uh, expose it for both founders and other investors as um, a new class of of investor that's 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 rising up in the ecosystem. Um, so that was that was the impetus. 
Absolutely. And, and maybe talk a little bit more about kind of where you see those specific types of investors fitting into the ecosystem. So you kind of drew this like big industry map and then identified solo capitalists as one of many different types of roles. But how did you kind of see that uh, evolving over time? Yeah, I mean, so number one, I think we're going to see more and more individual investors who attract founders and um and more and more founders who get excited to work with individual investors instead of traditional firms. And the reason I feel that way is if you look at the traditional firm world anyway today, you have uh, you know, certain individuals, usually it's actually like one or two individuals at any given firm who are the real draw for founders to that firm. Um, and so you know, the, the individualization of venture capital has been happening for a long time. And I think the solo capitalist movement is the sort of purest manifestation of that trend. Um, and, and so where I see them fitting is uh, these people like uh, Elad Gill, Ray Tonsing, Lockie Groom, um, Josh Buckley, Minal Hassan, uh, you know, Addie Lerner, uh, Nico Wittenborn. There's several of them, and actually, at some point, I should publish a follow-up post that that tries to name all of them or have like an ongoing list of a bunch of them. Um, but I think we'll see more people like this. Number one in the ecosystem, we'll see more of them leading rounds instead of the traditional firms leading, you know, a seed round or a Series A round in particular. And then the big question is how long can these individual investors sort of practice their craft uh, before they end up turning, you know, into firms themselves with more people around them? And I think that's a big question um, because it is hard to scale as a solo capitalist. If one day you're, you're handling, you know, 50, 60 portfolio companies, you're on the boards of 30 of them, uh, that's a challenging place to be. And our business notoriously doesn't scale anyway. And so I think that's kind of a big um, unknown question. Yeah, I, I think that the whole idea of you're basically unbundling a venture capital firm with the solo capitalists, and then at some point it has it in everything, it just gets bundled back together again, right? Yeah, I think I think that's that's potentially likely. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see um, a handful of them join together as well and and raise funds together, which will be very interesting too. Uh, I think the final point that's that's note, noteworthy and, and important to make is the limited partner ecosystem, the LPs that invest in venture funds. Um, these are university endowments, family offices, fund of funds, uh, pension funds. They have increasingly become comfortable with the idea of a sole GP. And uh, the fact that they are stepping up and uh, committing to these funds is a huge reason for why they can exist in, in the ecosystem today. And so I just thought it's important for, for folks to, to understand that aspect as well. Absolutely. I want to kind of go through a couple of companies that you've invested in really with the goal of trying to unpack uh, kind of the investment process or, or how you develop an investment thesis. Uh, the first one I figured that we would start with is Class Dojo. Maybe tell us a little bit about what this company does, how you came across them, and then what ultimately got you excited about investing. Yeah, Class Dojo has a special place in my heart because it was the first company um, that I got to work on at, as an investment at Shasta. Uh, and, and so we ended up leading the Series A round back in March of 2013. Uh, and back then, Class Dojo was a behavioral management product for teachers to be able to use in the classroom. And basically, Class Dojo helped teachers um, manage behavior and make their classrooms 
happier and more productive. Um, what Class Dojo is today, seven years later, is a communication platform for teachers, parents, and students, um, and also a place for parents to uh, to have more content and um, uh, and more engagement with their kids beyond school. Uh, and that's actually the way that the business monetizes: is that we uh, we have a subscription offering for parents, um, and uh, and we can upsell that to, to any parents on the platform. We we are free to teachers, and and always will be. Um, and so back in 2013, what got us excited about Class Dojo was it was organically growing to um, teachers around the country and around the world. And, um, you know, traditional companies in education technology had been selling into districts and selling into school systems. But what Class Dojo was doing was actually giving away a product for free to teachers and thereby organically spreading. And so the company number one had a whole bunch of early signs of product market fit when we invested. Number two, we felt that there was this chance for them to unlock uh, an amazing business model with parents down the road because they had heavy engagement and retention of parents already on the product, um, but they weren't yet offering parents anything more than the ability to see what teachers are saying about their kids. Um, and, and, and so that was kind of the second part of the thesis is, Hey, this is a chance to actually build a consumer education technology company. Um, and then the third part of the thesis was, uh, mission driven founders who were working on their life's work. And I think the thing that got us over the edge about class dojo was the belief that Sam and Liam, the founders were people who would, you know, stick to, to building this for, the next decade or more, um, who are incredibly kind of driven by um, the mission of making kids and teachers and classrooms uh, happier, uh, more productive, and um, and 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 I would say that's uh, that's also very much played out in the last uh, seven years since we invested. Um, so that's a little bit about kind of three pillars of the, the investment thesis. Uh, what got us excited about it, um, and you know, seven years later, uh, really proud of this investment. You know, the, the company is now tens of millions in revenue with um, parents who subscribe, and so we've unlocked that um, that business model that we predicted. Um, and uh, you know, the the product is used by tens of millions of um, you know parents, students, and teachers around the world. Uh, it's used by most of them for free. And, um, and, you know, I think for the founders, this is still, you know, a, a decades long journey ahead. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being the last job for, for both of them. Absolutely. How do you test for or try to unpack that commitment, that mission-driven element of a founder, right? You know, there's a lot of investors who will talk about uh, the easiest way for a company to fail is for the founders basically to give up. Um, so how do you kind of unpack that during diligence and as you get to know somebody? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the most, in some ways, it's the hardest part of, of early stage investing because so much of the decision ends up being about the people and about these founders' ability to sort of you know, get through wall after wall to, to make their vision a reality, um, to, to grit through everything, to persevere, um, 
their ability to prioritize well, their ability to hire well. And so you can try to test for some of this stuff at the early stage, but oftentimes you're making a, a sort of gut judgment on the founders. And it's probably the most subjective part of early stage investing. I would say with ClassDojo in particular, you know, we, uh, we spent a bunch of time with Sam and Liam, the founders. Uh, I remember going on a walk with Sam, the CEO, uh, as we were actually right after we had decided to give them a term sheet as we were trying to win them over and coming away from that hour long walk feeling, wow, this is someone that I'd want to work for. And this is someone who you, you can tell just how authentic the desire to build this is to him. And again, it's really hard to quantify that, but I think once you have met with a bunch of founders and once you've had some you know, recognition of uh, what it takes to commit and to stick to something, you can start to see patterns in those extraordinary founders who, who do end up figuring it out. Um, and I think we had elements of that that we saw in the Class Dojo founders at the early stage. Yeah, that's awesome. Another company is Canva, which uh, many people may not know, but this is an absolute monster of a business. Uh, talk a little bit about that one and kind of what the thesis was and how you guys got comfortable making the investment. Yeah, I mean, Canva is an absolutely amazing company, which um, you know has a, a software platform that enables anyone to design anything. Um, and so this is a company that today is hundreds of millions in ARR, a profitable business growing really quickly. I, I like to say to people that I hope one day Canva becomes a public company and I think it'll be the closest to Zoom of any financial profile S1 that I've seen in recent memory um, if, that, if that public offering happens for, for Canva one day because it's just an extraordinary business on sort of every uh, financial metric. Um, but when we invested in the company, it was 2014, so a year after Class Dojo. Um, and uh, the company had launched about six months prior to our investment. Um, and like Class Dojo, the, the first pillar of the thesis was a whole bunch of early signs of product market fit. So um, the Canva product in month six, month seven had hundreds of thousands of monthly active users. Those users were creating over a million designs a month. You could see in the early cohort retention that 30, 40, 50% of every cohort was still using the product and, and sticking around. And then there was this subset of tens of thousands of users who had already created tens of designs each on Canva and um, were basically using it for everything, everything from you know, social media infographics to slide decks to, um, to uh, editing photos um, to flyers. And, and so, and the final thing was the product was go growing 30, 40, 50% organically every month without the, the company doing anything to drive that growth. And so you could see on a whole bunch of dimensions, growth, engagement, retention, um, that Canva was special in like month six, month seven, it wasn't yet monetizing. And so there was this question around, Hey, how's it going to make money? Actually similar question. Now do they think about it to, to, to class dojo, but we believed that there were enough dollars going off to design that one day there would be a premium subscription that people would pay for to use Canva. And so, you know, I would say we, we got over that, that hump that, that there wasn't any revenue yet. And then again, the final thing that was just amazing about Canva was 
um, these two founders, Melanie Perkins and Cliff Obricht, um, who were out in Sydney, Australia, uh, you know, building this thing, you know, Canva was actually um, the second business that they'd been working on. They'd worked on a yearbook business beforehand and found it was actually difficult to design that yearbook and they needed great software to, to, to make the design. And so Canva was born out of a very authentic pain point for Melanie, Cliff and, and that early team. And you could just tell their insane passion for what they were working on. Um, and that passion was translated into a lot of different aspects of that product and a lot of reasons for why those early customers loved the product. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just been a remarkable journey since then to see what they've done in the last six years. And it's definitely exceeded, uh, you know, our wildest expectations. Absolutely. And when you look at a company like Canva, obviously, as you start to get data, you can really begin to understand, um, you know, is this working or is this not to, to some degree? Uh, how do you get comfortable investing before there's that data or before you see that that product? Like walk us through maybe kind of your process or some of the things you keep in mind uh, when you are pre-product, pre-data, pre-revenue. Such a great question. I mean, I think, again, this is really hard, you know, for, for um, every investor who invested in uh, one of these generational companies pre-product uh, and certainly pre-early signs of product market fit, I always tip my hat to those people because I think that's uh, way harder than investing once there are some early signs of, of product market fit. And to be honest with you, you know, most of the investments that I've made in my venture career have been once there are some early signs of product market fit. The handful of places where I've broken that rule have been where I've just felt so compelled by a founder or so compelled by a market opportunity or so compelled by maybe an early mock-up of the product that I was able to get, get there conviction-wise without seeing any early data. Um, and then a few of my regrets too in investing have been that way. So for instance, when I looked at Robinhood at the Series A, there wasn't early data that showed a whole bunch of signs of product market fit. You know, there was a wait list of hundreds of thousands of uh, users who wanted the product, but the product was only in the hands of like 100 people in the beta. You know, the thing that I was super excited about was seeing that product in action on the test flight and seeing how powerful stock trading was on mobile and believing that, wow, this could change the whole, uh, the whole industry. Um, and that's of course what um, Beijing and Vlad, the, the Robinhood founders believed. But I think those are really hard bets in venture capital to make where you know, something isn't working yet and I think you just have to rely on, on instinct around either the, the, the founders, the product, or the market. But it's instinct versus, um, versus data. The obvious answer to how you compensate for essentially taking more risk would be you'd want to pay a different price for, mm -hmm. uh, for what you're uh, investing in. Are there other things that you take into consideration when you are taking more risk other than just price? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's... It's price, but I think you also uh, are thinking, I certainly think about how big of a swing is this? Because I think if you are taking you know, more of a risk, then 
you want to believe there's just much more of a reward. And some of that is related to the entry price, but some of that's of course related to, um, you know, the ultimate exit prize, uh, uh, prize, not, not price. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll use that phrase one day. Uh, you know, so again, this is something that's very hard to, to quantify, especially because, some markets are unintuitive and, and, and hard to predict, you know, how big they can become. But, uh, you know, where I would take pre-product market fit risk would be on someone working on a disruptive technology that maybe no one else is working on or no one else could be working on. Uh, you know, I'd like to think if I saw something like SpaceX or Tesla at the very early stage, like that's the type of thing that's worth doing um, pre any signs of product market fit because you believe that, holy shit, if they pull this off, it could be massive. Um, and I, I, I would get less excited about an incremental idea, um, pre-product market fit, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Another business that's a little bit different than the first two we talked about, uh, that you've invested in is called Color. Um, it's in a whole different industry. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that business and kind of what was so uh, intriguing about it. Yeah, so Color... Um, color genomics uh, is a genomic testing uh, business, um, which started off with, uh, you know, a, a cheap and more convenient way for, um, for anyone to get uh, a cancer genomic screening test. And so there's a number of different genomic markers that, uh, that we now know have um, a higher level of likelihood to uh, ultimately lead to cancer than, than, than sort of if you don't have those, those markers. And the original color test uh, was a fast, uh, accurate, and cheap way to get that, um, get that screening. Uh, the company has evolved a bunch since our original investment, which was, I believe, in 2017. Um, uh, today, for instance, uh, they've done an incredible job in the last uh, eight months spinning up uh, a testing business for COVID-19. And, um, you know, if you're in a place like the Bay Area, uh, you know, Colors testing sites are all over the place and are one of the, the fastest and cheapest ways to get a, a COVID-19 test, uh, which has been uh, terrific for a whole number of reasons in the last eight months. Um, you know, this was a company that uh, I think the primary reason we made the investment was frankly the founders. We got really excited about uh, Elad Gill and Atman Laraki, uh, who were the two founders of Color. They they founded a company previously. Um, a lot of people know Elad now because of his uh, investing activity, the books that he's he's written. Um, Atman is the CEO of Color and sort of more under the radar, but equally, if not more accomplished, uh, an incredible angel investor, an incredible operator. Um, and so we thought that this was uh, just an incredible team that was getting built uh, to work on the intersection of biology, healthcare, and computing, which is an area that I actually studied in undergrad in, in, um, in college. I, I, I majored ultimately in molecular biology. And so I'd had a passion for this area for a long time. And I'd been looking for a team that could go execute against something really interesting in the space. And Color stood out to us as uh, just an extraordinary team working on a really interesting problem and a market that had potential to expand. 
And so that was actually very simply the investment thesis. We definitely couldn't have predicted, for instance, that they would get into COVID-19 testing uh, three, four years later. But I think that's kind of the, the reason to, to take a swing on a really high quality team is the chance for them to, to iterate over time to find these even more compelling opportunities than their original business. And I think that's right now the story of, of color. Yeah. And it's so funny to hear kind of each explanation of these businesses because the team is so important. And if you look at some of the great businesses today, right, whether it is Amazon, whether it's Twitter, a lot of these businesses uh, either started out doing something completely different and, and evolved, or they've drastically expanded what they've done. Um, and, and ultimately, like that is how you scale and build very, very large, you know, successful, valuable businesses. And so just like people are buying into Jack Dorsey or, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, or Mark Zuckerberg, you're really doing the exact same thing at the earliest stages of a business. You're just finding people that may not be known as you know, the person who can go do this yet. For sure. I mean, I think if you look at the arc of um, almost every amazing business, they had an act one that you know got to a bunch of signs of product market fit, a good business, maybe a great business in some cases. But then these companies had an act two, an act three, that uh, were even better businesses that expanded the size of the addressable market as well. Um, and you know that's the story over and over again. If you look at Tesla from you know Roadster to Model S to Model Three to you know what they are today, um, Amazon from books to the Everything Store to AWS, um, Shopify from e-commerce stores to now you know, financing and a platform and all this other stuff that they've done. It's the story over and over again. And that story relies on incredible um, entrepreneurs and leadership teams uh, delivering on a successful transition from an act one to an act two and an act three. And and those things are just not going to be present in an early stage company. So they're, they're fundamentally things that you're betting on uh, the team to do. Absolutely. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a couple of topics that you've written about. I, I always like to kind of get you to uh, expand on things you've already kind of put out into the public sphere. You've probably gotten a bunch of feedback on uh, things that people agree with, things that people don't agree with. And, and so maybe we can kind of dig a little bit deeper. Uh, the first is this idea of democratizing access being a, a kind of valuable thing. Um, and you broke it down into this framework of uh, essentially cheaper, free, uh, or more convenient. So can you kind of talk through why that specific framing um, and then maybe some of the, the ways you've seen this applied and, and been successful in the market? For sure. Um, you know, so when I reflect on a lot of the investments that I've made in the last decade, a lot of them actually come down to this thesis of democratizing access, which is uh, we know um, that there's this product or service that uh, you know, a bunch of people love, a bunch of people use, but it's not yet accessible to the broader population. And so a company comes in, makes it more accessible, and that expands the size of the market opportunity. That's, that's the thesis in a nutshell. And so I started to think about, okay, what are some of the most powerful companies that I've seen that have democratized access? There are companies, let's take FinTech as one uh, area, right? Robinhood is a company that's democratized access to stock trading, and they did that by uh, by making it free uh, and on mobile. Um, you know, Coinbase is an example of a company that's democratized access to uh, people, you know, um, 
holding, uh, buying, selling uh, cryptocurrencies. And I would argue that the primary way they've done that is by making it more convenient. Um, they've actually, you know, it's, it's actually more expensive uh, on Coinbase than on a bunch of other platforms because the Coinbase fee is more expensive, um, but it's more convenient. Um, and then, uh, you know, there are a bunch of companies, um, for instance, I recently invested in a company called Alto IRA, uh, which enables people to invest in, um, in alternative assets out of their retirement funds. And I think you might be involved in, in companies as well in this space. Um, but that company is make, has made it cheaper to, um, to invest in alternative assets out of your retirement funds, like your IRA, uh, than a bunch of the traditional incumbents in that space that make it super expensive to do that. Uh, and so, you know, I think these three axes, you know, cheaper, um, more convenient, and then free are the three axes through which most companies democratize access. And that's what I was trying to flesh out in that blog post. How important is it for a company to have two of three versus one of three or three of three versus two of three? Like, is there kind of uh, additional value that is captured by having multiple components? So like Alta is a, a good example. Not only is it cheaper, but also it's more convenient, right? Yes. So they kind of check two of the three boxes. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, I didn't make this point explicit in my post, but I did get uh, feedback around it and I've reflected on it. And I think the key is to probably spike on one of those three dimensions. So either, you know, you're spiking the consumers because you're offering this thing that used to be really expensive and now it's cheaper or something that was actually pretty cheap, but now it's free, or this is just way more convenient than any other approach. And I think, so, so I think you have to spike on one of them. And I think ideally you want to be more convenient as well as free or more convenient as well as cheaper. Um, uh, and so Again, it probably deserves at some point a follow-up, and I'd love for others out there who've thought about it to follow up and 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 sort of push back. One of the, the best parts about writing is, as I think you know as well, you're getting your thoughts out there and then having a bunch of really smart people respond to them. Um, and so I think you're right that that's it's it's likely multiple that lead to the the sort of deadly combination. Yeah. Another topic you've written about is kind of the consumerization of healthcare. Uh, when people think of healthcare, they don't necessarily think of uh, user-friendly uh, interfaces or user experiences that leave you delighted. Uh, I think what you wrote about was uh, was really one compelling, but also two kind of gives people a peek into uh, the future of healthcare. So maybe unpack that a little bit. Well, I think broadly speaking, you know, this healthcare is one of the giant categories, uh, especially in the US, that has actually become more expensive over the last several decades and has become a worse experience for a lot of people. And so there's so much to do in this area. I think if you have to pick one segment of the economy that is the, one of the biggest and the most painful for uh, the majority of people, it's probably healthcare and there's so much to do here. What I've been encouraged by is there are now finally a number of success stories of companies that, um, that are consumerizing healthcare that have figured out a way to get to the end user, the, the, the patient, um, and deliver something that's just a way better experience for them. And in many cases, they've actually gone direct to the consumer in how they've gone to market as well. And so as an example of this, uh, about three years ago, I spent time with a number of players in the market 
who were working on a combination of telemedicine and pharmacy delivery to enable a much better uh, consumer healthcare experience. And so I'm thinking about companies like Hims, um, Row, uh, Nurex, and Pill Club. Um, these are kind of the four players that are all hundreds of millions in revenue now um, through a combination of uh, telemedicine and pharmacy. And if you think about that, they've basically eliminated multiple steps that are painful in the existing healthcare experience for many people. You know, they've eliminated the step of having to go to the doctor to um, tell a doctor about something that's going on with them and then go to the pharmacy to get um, the prescription and, and then maybe sometimes go back to pick it up. Um, you know, all of that is replaced through one uh, online uh, mobile-friendly experience um, for getting things like uh, birth control, um, uh, ED medication, uh, hair loss medication, et cetera. Um, and so as I started, you know, these, these companies were the first that I saw um, really have true signs of product market fit directly with consumers in healthcare. And, um, and so I've been thinking about this thesis uh, really for the last three, four years, you know, color feeds into this thesis, pill club and other of my investments fits into this thesis. And I wrote the post because I'd love to make more investments around this. Cause I think number one, there's a ton of, um, you know, potential return there to, to be made for an early stage investor like me. But number two, I think it's really important for our society that we, uh, we build more of these products. Yeah. And what's really interesting about Roe and Hims and I think a couple of the others, a lot of them got started right around the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I've always wondered is, is it something where one entrepreneur kind of identifies a market opportunity, word spreads quickly, and there's two or three fast followers? Uh, or is it more of there's some inflection point, whether it's a regulatory thing, it's a technology advancement, you know, something kind of opens up the opportunity, and you just have a lot of smart people constantly thinking of ideas, and, and a number of people come to the same conclusion around the same time. How do yeah. you kind of evaluate, you know, okay, there's this telemedicine plus pharmaceutical uh, mechanism, multiple companies are going after it. Does that scare you away? Does that actually make you more excited because it validates an opportunity? Just what's that framework you use? So number one, I think to answer your question directly, it's probably a combination of those factors usually that leads to a whole bunch of companies working on something similar at the same time. And this has happened over and over again. Um, uh, you know, so so I would say it's a combination. In in this particular area of telemedicine plus pharmacy, I think it is very much a combination of regulations changing to enable broader access to telemedicine, to enable um, a prescription to be uh, made electronically, and then um, and then you know delivered via mail or via courier very easily. Um, you know, finally. And and another market tailwind, you know, around being able to advertise direct to consumers and um, platforms like Facebook and Google, uh, making it more accessible for these companies to use uh, to, to 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 get directly to consumers. I think also enabled these businesses to sort of all start to work at the same time. And then my guess is, you know, they all sort of saw. The others doing well, and that propelled sort of more entrepreneurial activity. That the, them all becoming a little bit more aggressive, um, and and so when I see the and so to answer your second question, when I see these types of areas, uh, I would say 
I get interested often. Um, and then I try to figure out which is, you know, the player that I want to invest in um, within that area. And what are the types of characteristics of that particular market that would lead to one player becoming bigger than another or potentially multiple players all becoming really big? Um, you know, what I've learned over the years is even though some categories may seem that they are winner take all, most categories are actually not. You know, most categories, especially ones that are expanding rapidly, um, can have multiple winners. And we have seen that if you think about, you know, um, uh, transportation, right? You know, Uber and Lyft are both uh, are both successes, uh, especially for early stage investors. Um, in food delivery, uh, there's a whole bunch of successes. It isn't actually just Uber Eats and DoorDash um, and Postmates and Grubhub. It's also Domino's, for instance, right? And um, which I know you're 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 a big fan of, uh, but. You know, there can be multiple big winners in some of these massively expanding markets. And so I think about that too. Absolutely. The third topic I want to talk about is kind of consumer subscriptions. Um, it seems like uh, the world has woken up to subscriptions as if it's some new thing that, uh, you know, was just discovered uh, last year or something. Uh, you see this with everything from the substacks of the world all the way, you know, to, to Netflix, et cetera. But obviously it's a business model that's been around for a very, very long time. Why kind of bullish on this and, and what was really driving the, uh, the intrigue or, or interest? Yeah, so I would say this is an area that um, I probably know the most about from all the different things that I've written. In, That's why I in, saved it for last. <laughs> yeah, and next week thing, you know, a lot of them I, I feel a little bit like a, a poser writing about something or, you know, an outsider looking in. You know, I don't actually know that much about it. But, you know, at Shasta, over the last eight years, I invested in a number of subscription businesses, both digital such as Canva and Class Dojo, which we talked about, and uh, physical, you know, businesses like Pill Club, which have a physical component of delivering, in their case, medication to, um, to their consumers on a recurring subscription basis. And so what, I, what I've actually wanted to write for many years is uh, a series of posts around consumer subscriptions. And so this was one that was kind of pent up for a while. Um, and what has frustrated me about kind of the literature in this area is not that many people have talked about it, you know, whereas if you look at marketplaces, another business model in the internet, um, there's tons of writing about marketplaces, right? You have like all these terrific posts about, you know, um, different factors of marketplaces that make them successful, such as one that Bill Gilly did, I think about eight years ago. Um, we have all these lists of like the top marketplace companies, um, the top marketplace founders, but I, I've just felt that the literature is lacking on the subscription side, and I wanted to write a series of, of pieces around that. And so that was really the, the driving force. It isn't a new thesis area for me um, per se, but I think one that deserves more exploration because of how prevalent it is. Um, and so hopefully people found it interesting for that reason. Yeah. And, and how do you see uh, consumer subscriptions evolving uh, specifically through the lens of it almost feels like there's um, 
jockeying might not be the right word, but there's this balance. Like every time SaaS uh, startups with kind of this recurring revenue model uh, makes a leap forward, uh, it seems like consumer subscription companies aren't that far behind. And there's a lot of similarities in just the uh, subscription nature of the revenue and, and things. And I'm specifically thinking through, uh, you know, take a company like maybe Pipe that does sort of, um, you know, they, they help to get capital to a company without it being dilutive. And they use this recurring revenue uh, as a uh, way to determine how much and, and when they'll, they'll give them that capital. That to me feels like a very much SaaS-like service that's been around, right? Or servicing SaaS companies. But now that type of stuff is trickling into the consumer subscription space. And so is that something that we should maybe expect to happen more? Is that something that's just like, there might be some one-off examples, but not necessarily a trend or, or maybe you haven't even thought about it that way and, and think about it some other way. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting point. I mean, broadly speaking, the way I think about the world is that there's less of a division between consumers and enterprises than ever before. Um, I mean, this is kind of a theme if you think about it, We've, we've already talked about this in this very podcast episode. We started to talk about solo capitalists at the beginning and the sort of unbundling of venture firms. Um, you know, and now we're talking about kind of the unbundling to a certain extent of, of businesses into individual um, you know, end users and consumers at, at, at those businesses. And so I just think you know, there's, there's a lot of learnings from... Um, you know, traditional enterprise businesses that one can apply to consumers and traditional consumer businesses that one can apply to enterprises. And I hope to flesh out more of this through Next Big Thing. You know, I wrote the, the, second, um, the second issue of the newsletter is all about the blend uh, of consumer and enterprise and the blurring between those lines. And so I think you're absolutely right that there's a bunch of stuff from software as a service um, you know, B2B businesses that one can apply to consumer businesses. And I think there's a bunch of stuff from consumer subscription businesses that, that, that apply to SaaS. Um, with Pipe specifically, I mean, this, the thing that started running through my head is, you know, could you see a world in which, um, you, you know, uh, number one, there's, uh, there's some sort of alternate funding mechanism for consumer subscription businesses, because like SaaS businesses, they are more predictable than um, a non-subscription-based uh, consumer business. And I, I think there should be. Um, and then the other thing I started to think about is, you know, for the consumers of subscription businesses, will there be financing products for, for people like you and I um, that, you know, enable us to uh, to somehow, you know, um, spend more of our money on subscriptions or sort of have more peace of mind that when we're spending on subscriptions, um, that's not, you, you know, uh, you know, pushing us into, um, you know, a, a challenging income territory or a cha challenging sort of um, balance sheet. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's an interesting idea because I, I do think we're going to see um, a bunch more proliferation of consumer subscription services. Yeah. The, the other piece that I've thought about and uh, by no means have answers to, but, but I think are interesting questions is um, if you think of traditional uh, kind of 
content business. Let's use them as an example, right? So podcast, there's a bunch of people now talking about like, oh, there should be subscription podcast, right? There's subscription emails, there's subscription uh, television and streaming and like all these other pieces of content. And, um, you know, theoretically that makes sense. Uh, there's a couple of people who have made it work, but there's also a lot of people who have tried it and it hasn't worked. And I always kind of start to think through, is it a business model friction point, right? Like, is it, are you testing the business model or is it no, if it works for all these other different types of content, it will work here. It's just, somebody has got to figure out the right pricing, the right, you know, technology platform, the right experience, um, right, right value proposition, like it, you know, it's kind of the unknown a little bit, but it, it always feels like there's this debate around, um, is it, this is the right idea, it just hasn't been properly applied yet? Or is it, no, the idea is wrong and therefore everyone who tries is gonna eventually, you know, kind of come to the same conclusion? I think, um, first of all, I think a lot of things can be subscriptionized, uh, including podcasts. I think one of the hardest things in podcasts in particular is that, we've just been accustomed to getting them for free. And so the ad supported model, especially in the, in the US has been dominant for a long, long period of time. And so I think when something is already free, uh, moving it back to being uh, paid and you know, a premium subscription model is difficult, but I still think in podcasts, we're gonna see a bunch of different attempts. I think even this morning, um, Spotify made a bunch of announcements around uh, you know, a, a premium podcast service that was ad free. Um, and I, I suspected that this is where they were going. I was actually surprised that as a premium spot, Spotify subscriber, I was listening to spot to, to podcasts on Spotify that still had ads. It was kind of a weird experience to go from like never having ads in my Spotify experience to suddenly having ads when, when a, a podcast showed up. And so it's completely unsurprising to me that they are, going to go down this path and going to try to have people pay for podcasts that, that don't have ads. And I suspect that we'll see a bunch of people pay for them because it is a better experience for a lot of people to not listen to the ads. Um, and then I think like there's all these other things. I mean, I don't know. I, I think any, um, any like small business or entrepreneur has the chance to offer something on a subscription basis. I mean, you look at like Patreon, which is enabling, um, the patronage model for influencers. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about like local businesses and, you know, could you imagine becoming a subscriber to your local pizza restaurant or um, your favorite fine dining place in your city? Uh, I mean, first of all, these businesses need more predictable income than ever before. Uh, second of all, I think anyway, people start to think about themselves as like patrons of their, their favorite local business. And so it's a natural existing behavior. Um, and so I just think there's a ton of opportunity yet to be explored. And that's just one small idea um, uh, around subscriptions. Yeah, I, I love the way you think about it. The last topic I want to cover uh, before we get into the rapid fire to wrap up is crypto. Um, I don't think you've ever publicly talked or, or definitely not uh, a lot talked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. What's kind of your view uh, on the assets themselves, the industry, and uh, whether you've ever done anything in the space? Yeah. First of all, I feel weird talking about this, given how much of an expert you are in this area, but I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I, I started exploring um, crypto through buying Bitcoin, I think back in 2013 or, or maybe a bunch in 2013 and 2014. Um, and, 
and just decided to hold, uh, you know, so that I have some some small percent of my you know net worth in in crypto assets. And of course, as those assets have risen in prices, suddenly it's a more important part of my my overall um, net worth. You know, the thing that I've always been looking out for that I've yet to see come to fruition is, you know, an amazing uh, end user driven consumer application or enterprise application that uh, is a better experience than the status quo. And, you know, the big reason for that better experience is, uh, is crypto, but, um, but that isn't the thing that, that gets people excited to use the product or the service. It's just an underlying reason for why the experience is way better. And, um, and I hope that we see more and more products like that going forward. I mean, the obvious place that I, that I, that I think we could see it is, um, is in, you know, financial services where, you know, you could, you could have, you know, a payment product or a money transfer product or a lending product that just has, you know, way lower transaction costs, way lower fees, lower interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, because the underlying technology is, is, um, is powered by crypto, but we haven't yet seen, I think, someone really come out and, and have that amazing use case um, and deliver an end user experience that's just, you know, uh, broadly applicable. Um, and I think when we see that, the floodgates will start to open. Um, I'm curious if that resonates with you or um, how you feel about that. I, I think you're directionally correct. Like the, the big uh, difference or kind of line I would draw is just like, there's the consumer applications to do things with them outside of a financial uh, type asset. Um, and then there's like the financial um, asset type application. Uh, I think that the part where we've seen a lot of improvement is on the financial asset side. So like Bitcoin being used as a store value or a medium of exchange. Um, what are all the things you can do if that was a financial asset? So can I use it as collateral to get a US dollar loan, right? Can I use it to earn interest? Can I use it to you know do a whole host of other things? That part to me feels like that's really accelerated, uh, especially over the last like two, three years. Um, but when you talk about what can I do with Bitcoin uh, in terms of, you know, can I go to the store and quote unquote buy coffee with it, right? It's kind of the example everyone always uses. And like some people will just argue like that's not really important right now, right? Like that's kind of like the, the last thing that needs to be developed. Uh, other people would argue like, look, there's some progress that's been made, but obviously there's not, you know, in New York City, millions of people walking around spending Bitcoin, right? And, and so you can kind of try to unpack some of this. Um, and, and so I always think through on the crypto side specifically, like how much of it should look like the traditional technology world, right? Like all the things that you and I would think about, whether it's consumer, enterprise, whatever, versus no, the point of this is to like be different, to kind of disrupt the status quo, right? And so like the more it looks the same, actually the least, the, the less disruptive it's going to be, right? Yeah. And, and I, I frankly, uh, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> like, like that's something I constantly think through. Um, but, but to your point, in either one of those scenarios, you have to have very user-friendly type interfaces. You've got to have products that are intuitive. Um, and I think that, you know, what we saw was the true technologist, right? The, the people who aren't designers, who aren't kind of UX experts, they aren't uh, growth marketers and, and kind of all those, you know, important roles, but not the actual technologists themselves. Uh, they just haven't been in the space, right? Up until maybe two years ago. And so now you're starting to see more and more come in, products are improving, but, uh, you know, compare that to uh, the traditional 
technology world and still got a ways to go. Yeah. Uh, I think you made a bunch of really, really good points in there. Like I, I've already, my brain has started to think through um, just the low hanging fruit that you described. I mean, if there's a set of people out there, which it seems that there are who are just holding, you know, Bitcoin, for instance, as a store of value, you know, there should be some sort of, you know, some risk models that take that into account as, uh, as those folks are underwritten for things like mortgages. Um, and I don't think that that's happening yet. And, and, but it should be, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, even for myself selfishly, like, you know, if I want to refi our mortgage, uh, it would be great to have the crypto holdings taken into account through, through some way. Of course, interest rates are very low right now, but, yeah. but, you know, or, you know, a down payment through crypto or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and those feel like the low hanging fruit for the set of folks that, that, that hold it today is, as purely a store of value. Yeah. The, the two pieces of this that are really interesting. So obviously um, it's become pretty public now that it's like 63% of all existing Bitcoin, like in the circulating supply, haven't moved in the last 12 months. So generally that just means like there's a lot of people holding and not trading or, or using it, whatever. Um, and uh, we, we invested in a company, everyone who listens will, will know it, uh, BlockFi, which uh, one of the first products they had was you deposit uh, Bitcoin or crypto, uh, they take possession and then they give you a US dollar loan against the collateral. But what was so fascinating when I looked at it was, you know, let's take a car paint or a car loan, for example. Basically, if you're the bank and I'm the person buying the car, I come to you and I say, hey, Nikhil, you know, I'm a really good person. I promise I'll pay you back. Give me the loan, right? And uh, the collateral will be the car, but I'm going to take the car. I'm going to go drive it around every day. And you'd say, okay, like make sure you make the payments. And if not, I'm going to come find your car and, you know, confiscate it and then liquidate it. Uh, and so like you as the bank actually took quite a bit of risk, right? You had to underwrite me. And then if something went wrong, you had to go find the, uh, the collateral. With this model, basically somebody gives the Bitcoin, you hold on to it, you give the US dollar loan against it, but it's also an over collateralized loan. So if I give you, you know, $100,000 of Bitcoin, you give me $30,000 loan. If I do anything stupid, I don't pay you, you know, whatever, you have the collateral already and it's over collateralized. So with the volatility and, and we started to unpack this and we're just like, wow, this is a way better experience for the lenders um, because basically it's the holy grail of lending, right? It's like, hey, I'd love an over collateralized loan where I hold onto the collateral and basically have no risk, right? Or very little risk. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that to your point, it's like, okay, that's one example. There's probably... 50 others that people will come up with where like this asset provides a unique mechanism um, that doesn't exist in the legacy world, but we can take kind of lending or spending or, you know, whatever it is and, and apply it in a unique way. Yeah. And then the question is how to make it really easy to understand for, you know, both sides for the lender in this case, as well as for the consumer and, um, and help them understand why it's it's so powerful and and so much better than the status quo. Um, and maybe that's actually the hardest part of all this is not, you know, the the sort of product itself, more the the messaging and positioning and um, education around it. As uh, as somebody told me, uh, the word cryptocurrency is uh, scary enough, right? Crypto anything, people are like, ah, that's, you know, I'm going to get hacked, right? It is like kind of the, the reaction. So it's an uphill battle. Sure. Uh, but before we uh, we wrap up, I ask everyone the same two questions uh, and then you'll get a chance to ask me one. Uh, the first question is just, what is the most important book that you've ever read? Oh gosh. So um, I'm assuming you have many. 
Yeah, th this is really hard for me. I think um, the, the, the first one that, that, that comes to mind is uh, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And the reason I've been thinking about that book all year is, um, you know, it talks about what it's like to be black in this country and, um, and just the experience um, for all of American history. Uh, you know, for um, for African Americans here, and for me, having grown up in the UK and not being exposed to this history as a kid, reading that book, I think about five years ago now, was uh, was really powerful and really educational, and helped me understand more about that experience uh, as an outsider. And I just think it should be required reading for everyone who lives here, um, and frankly, everyone you know uh, around the world. So that's the one that jumps out. Nothing related to um, business or technology, but but really, really impactful for me personally. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Second question is more fun. Aliens, are you a believer or a non-believer? I'm a non-believer. Um, you know, I'm Why? Sorry. You know, I just think, uh, I don't know. I think that um, this planet is really unique from everything we can tell. And... Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just think that, uh, you know, if, if they were out there somewhere, then we would have already found out, but, you know, maybe we are just living in a simulation or something and I'm completely wrong. <laughs> uh, Elon, uh, obviously believes the, uh, the simulation is more likely than, uh, than most others, but, uh, we will see, uh, you could ask me one question to, uh, to wrap up. What do you got for me? How's married life during the pandemic and yeah, what's that been like? Now you got married recently as well, right? Yeah, we got married almost two years ago now. Two years but, ago, okay. You know, we got married pre-pandemic, so we had that adjustment period, and then suddenly the pandemic hit. Whereas you guys, I think, got married during the pandemic, right? We did. Um, I, so everyone's a little bit different. We'd already lived together uh, for I don't know, year and a half, almost two years, maybe. So like a lot of the hey, we're just moving in together, like, let's get used to living with each other uh, was already out of the way. Um, when it came to the wedding itself, uh, we were already going to have a small wedding. And uh, it was one of these things where we were going to get married in April. And so when everything hit in March, it's like, ah, no way this is going to go on for four weeks, right? <laughs> like two weeks. That's what they said. You know, two weeks later, you're like, okay, uh, let's push the wedding back as far as we think is necessary. There's no way this will still be going on in July. <laughs> July, you know, kind of June 15th or whatever comes around. We're like, oh, this is not going to end anytime soon. Uh, and so we made the decision. We said, look, we'll just go get married ourselves, just the two of us. Uh, so, you know, not even our parents were there. Uh, but it was one of these, you know, kind of decisions of like, am I really going to, postpone my life basically for a year, right? And kind of wait till uh, the next summer. And we had a lot of friends who did that, but for us, it was just, I don't know. It, it just kind of, it was for us anyways, right? So it's like, let's just go get married. Um, but uh, I, I do tell the story uh, on the way to the quote unquote wedding. Uh, my brother was the uh, um, kind of the, 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 not the priest, but like the officiant and uh, Polina was already there. And I had a texture and I said, uh, I may be a couple minutes late, we literally are in an Uber and we're stuck in a protest. Like we were driving down the road and, and in New York, right? Wow. And so it was just, you know, a pandemic, all the social unrest, like all this stuff going on. And uh, it, it just, 
is not what you planned, right? But uh, but you kind of just deal with it, and then uh, sometime next year we'll have like a little party or something, so uh, uh, we can celebrate with friends and family. So it'll it'll be good, but uh, uh, provides a lot of good stories, right? Yeah, sounds unforgettable, and I think you know if you guys have. Uh, been able to figure out, you know, your relationship and getting married and all the stuff during this time. I'm sure you can conquer anything together. So hopefully that's the the great upside. Right before we got married, every married couple we knew said the same thing. Uh, if you lasted this long locked down together, you'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Good stuff. All right. All right, Nikhil, listen, where can we send people to find you on the internet, uh, find out uh, more about what you're doing and kind of your writing? Where, where would be the best places to, to uh, connect with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, on Twitter at NBT, my initials, um, they also happen to be the initials of next big thing. Um, so nbt.substack.com is next big thing, the newsletter and at NBT on Twitter is where you can easily find me and reach out. to me. You're building a monopoly on those three letters. I like it. <laughs> awesome, man. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. I'll have to do it again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on.